Yeah, I think especially early on in careers, risk is called risk for a reason, right? There's potential that it goes great, big upside, but also there's a potential for downside. That said, early on in a career, there's really only one X downside, if you will. Like you go spend a year working at something and doesn't work out, it's just a year. But I think the potential upside is huge. I think you can compound both your professional development as well as potentially financial outcomes many times over in a short period of time. And so that to me, that was what was so compelling about the startup space more broadly. That's Julia DeWalt talking about what drew her into the startup scene. Julia was an early employee at Opendoor, where she led operations and helped scale the company from 10 to 1,000 plus employees. In this episode, we talk about the similarities between deciding which company to join and which to invest in. We discuss Julia's approach to the pre-product market fit journey and dive into what it means to build a world-class operations team. I'm your host, Kojo Osei, and welcome to Inside Round. Let's dive in with Julia. Julia, welcome to the pod. Let's start with your transition from management consulting into tech. What motivated that transition? I was at Bain starting out after college for about two or so years and starting to think about what I wanted to do next. And I just noticed that all of the interesting, ambitious people I'd known from college had started to move out to the Bay Area. And so I made the transition out to San Francisco and pretty quickly was just surrounded by the startup scene. So it was a little bit of the place and time of everyone I, I was spending time with was working in startups. And it, there was tons of great energy. People seemed to be taking risk, learning a lot. And it just felt like the environment I wanted to be in. So it became pretty clear that I no longer wanted to be consulting, wanted to make the leap. And the next big thing I think after that is which company to go choose. There certainly were a lot of startups at the time. There still are today. And for me, I looked around. I said, I think I want to join something quite early. I found the product market fit journey that I was just starting to learn about to be pretty interesting. And so Opendoor, I actually read about in TechCrunch right after they had raised a little bit of their first seed round. And it just felt like no one had been doing anything really new and different in real estate yet since Zillow. And that was a decade earlier. And so I got in touch with Eric, the CEO, founder, and learned that it indeed was only 10 people. And they were just getting started and just gotten their first customer. And just felt like that was the time to make the leap over and was excited about the market, was excited about the team and felt the product had some potential and would probably be something that could grow into be a big business. Open Door at the time was at the early end of the spectrum from early to more mature and consequently had more risk. What advice would you give to someone who's thinking through the risk of joining an early stage startup? Yeah, I think especially early on in careers. Risk is called risk for a reason, right? There's potential that it goes great, big upside, but also there's a potential for downside. That said, early on in a career, there's really only one X downside, if you will. Like you go spend a year working at something and doesn't work out. It's just a year. But I think the potential upside is huge. I think you can compound both your professional development as well as potentially financial outcomes many times over in a short period of time. And so that to me, that was what was so compelling about the startup space more broadly. But that said, I think being thoughtful about which company you join is really important. And I I usually like to think about that framework the way I might think about investing in a company today as well, which mm-hmm. is a few things. One is 
the market? What kind of product are they building? And might there be a big market for what this is? It doesn't necessarily mean that the market needs to be big today, but you want it to eventually be big so that the company can be a big company because it is fun to work at a place that's growing and just has potential to reach a lot of people. The second thing, of course, is the product itself. So I love to look for very deep and specific problems that can be specifically solved by the the product that's being built. And ideally you're building something that's also new and different to the market. There isn't already an offering out there. I, I would advise anyone looking uh, to join a startup to really think about the product, maybe even get on a call or something with, with some of their customers or try it themselves. It's a consumer product. And the last thing is team. A lot of entrepreneurs are not necessarily the most experienced in their field. And they're taking a lot of risk themselves. I don't think you necessarily need to look for tons of experience in the founding team. But what I do think is important is a growth mindset for that team. And that means they're going to be able to grow into their role as leaders of the company as things progress with the company. And so that's that's the third thing I would look Mm -hmm. for. It's remarkable how thinking through which startup to join is very, very similar to thinking through which startup to invest in. Let's switch gears a bit to the pre-product market fit journey at Opendoor, which is what drew you to the company in the first place. Were there signals that you were trending in the right direction? And what was that journey like in practice? This was one of my favorite parts of being at Opendoor was being able to be there so early on and getting to be a part of really understanding the market and the customer. What did they need? What were their pain points? And then how are we going to build something that could help solve those? And Talking to customers or potential customers is absolutely the way to do that. I remember we went down to Phoenix, which was our first market, and stood outside an Einstein bagel shop, and me and one of the founders, and we approached people and said, hey, can we buy you a coffee? We'd, we'd love to chat with you about selling a home, if that's something you've ever done. And so we'd get some people be like, oh, sure. And we'd sit down with them for 10 minutes or so and just ask them to tell us about their experience. And you'd start to hear the trends of what made it so stressful and painful to sell a house. And then secondarily, we would then present the open door concept. So sometimes we'd bring a kind of a mock-up landing page or just ex- explain it and then get people's reactions to it. And so actually none of us had, had sold homes yet. We were young and weren't even homeowners. So we, we had a lot to learn, I think, about the space. But what became clear is that there was a lot of stress around the process, a lot of uncertainty. And the, the big insight was that it also stressed people out about their buying of their next home. And it became clear that the open door product, which would allow people to sell their home, know exactly what they were getting, be able to choose their closed timeline to line up with a next purchase, for example, was really compelling to people. And that it became clear in the qualitative insights through those interviews we did. But even more importantly, once we put that product out to market and saw conversion through the funnel and conversion was just looking great, even from quite the beginning, then we knew we really were on. I'd love to double click into this notion of interviewing customers qualitatively, as well as sometimes quantitatively, which is something that I spent a lot of time thinking about as an operator. There's an inherent tension between listening to your users and listening to what you're saying versus observing what you're doing. And so the classic kind of critique that people make when they talk about interviewing customers is that if you ask people what they want, they'd say they want a better horse versus a car. How did you think about getting to the, those insights that you mentioned when you were interviewing people on the street who may not necessarily have even thought too much about the, the question of home ownership? Yeah, it's a great question. The customer is really not meant to be the one coming up with that vision for the product. And 
So I think there's a lot of digging and exploring to do around a person's experience with whatever it is that they were doing in this case, selling a home and just really feeling like we as product owners really understood it and could identify with our customer, feel like we were in their shoes. But then it was on us to be the one saying, what does the future look like way down the road? Not necessarily be anchored by anything a customer said about what they wanted to see, for example, and realize what might be possible. And it was our job to, to push that as, as far as we could. And so I, I, I don't necessarily think there has to be attention, but I do think that definitely taking any customer sort of suggestion about your product with a grain of salt hmm. is probably the right thing to do. But using them to really under deeply understand their problems is absolutely the really valuable part. It's a distinction between listening to the customer for the problem versus the solution. I, I love that yes, framework and exactly. that articulation of it. So Julia, when I was looking at your background for this interview, one of the things that struck me was that you're probably one of the few people who has really worked on operations, heavy products. So from open door and now to Starlink, can you describe for folks who may not have worked in a company that has an operations team, what is operations in a startup and in a company? Yeah. Operations is really making a company function. And I know that sounds incredibly broad, but in fact, operations does mean different things to different companies, depending on what type of company they are. And for us at Open Door, there was both a software component. We did have a website and consumer flow through that website, but there was also a set of homes that we owned and we maintained them, we did some renovation on them. We put them on the MLS and there was a plenty of real world operations as well. And so as I think about operations in the broad sense of the term, it, it's a few things. One, building systems. It's also tracking metrics. And then there is a big people component to operations, especially when you have a big team working in the offline world. And so maybe we, we can talk a little bit about some of those, but building systems was one of the things that we didn't need to do right at day one when we were launching Open Door because we said, hi, let's just run through one home sale with one customer, <laughs> make sure it works, make sure we've uh, figured out what all the steps are. And so it really starts out with just saying, hey, let's map this out. Let's, let's just throw this on a whiteboard. What are all the things we need to do to get to help a customer sell their home? What are the dependencies between those tasks? Who do we want to do each of those? And hey, in the beginning, it might just be the, the one person who's running operations doing them. But eventually you might think about, oh, are, the, are there specialized roles in this? And how do we build out teams around that? And then it goes into saying, okay, let's run this several times over. We're going to buy several houses this week and let's build a, a lightweight tool. You know, let's use a lightweight tool to build a system and run this now multiple times. We started out with an Asana checklist at Open Door, for example, and that was a really lightweight. We could make a template duplicate the template for each additional home. But that eventually led us to building internal tools with, with a proper product manager and a software engineering team. But I think that they it probably would have been a waste of their time for them to have done that in the very beginning because we did change how we did things, our processes changed. So using some of those home-built tools up front can be really helpful on the systems so building side. When did you know to pull the trigger to take engineering resources to systematize things from an Asana template. What was the trigger for you? A couple of things. One is when the process, the level or rate of change of process was starting to slow down. And we did feel like we were, we had done this many times over a little more solidified in how things were done. So that was one, but two is engineering resources are always scarce and there was a consumer product to be built. So there were other things that 
took priority over the internal tools, frankly, and we did rely on our own systems we'd built, the great collaborative kind of no-code tools that exist out there. And we did rely on that for a while. Once it felt like the tooling would unlock true next level growth into new cities and to really be getting into the tens of homes a day type of level, then it felt like we really needed to have robust systems that we were managing. I'd love to talk a little bit about tracking metrics. So this is another area where I think sometimes founders and product leaders and people in startups can tend to obsess over. What is some helpful framework for deciding which are the important metrics to track, how to track them, and how much to index on the metrics versus a more qualitative understanding of what's going on in the business? So at the very beginning, metrics are probably a bit less important and you do lean into the qualitative insight, really talking to customers, understanding if you have something that people want, or if not, how do you tweak the product? How do you pivot potentially? But there are some metrics that I think work well at the beginning when you're trying to verify that you do have product market fit. And then there are metrics that I think work better later on. So in the very beginning, once we did have the initial open door product live, conversion and NPS were two really important metrics to us. Conversion because we wanted to understand people who heard about Open Door, however they did, how likely were they to use Open Door to sell their home? And that was a really great indicator of how compelling is Open Door compared to calling up a realtor and putting it on the market the traditional way. So that was a great one. And then the second one was MPS, Net Promoter Score, which asks people how likely they are to recommend something to a friend or colleague. And that's another great metric because it's, it's actually quite benchmarkable. So you can compare to other industries or other companies within an industry and allows you to understand basically an overall assessment. Did people like this thing? Did they want to recommend it to someone they knew? And mm -hmm. then that, that helped again, assess, do we have something that people want? <laughs> Later on growth and profitability became more important and growth before profitability, frankly. So. Once we felt like conversion and NPS were looking good, it felt like this was something we wanted to scale and reach as many people as possible with. And so we started to say, how many sellers are we working with? And first it was just in Phoenix when we were operating in, in Phoenix in the first year or so of the company. And then it was also growth across multiple cities in the U.S. Speaking about the different metrics that matter at different times, one thing that brings up is also that improving one metric could sometimes impact another metric. And so a lot of product folks and a lot of founders talk about the North Star metric. How did you think about the trade-offs in optimizing metrics at Open Door? Did you ever find yourself in a scenario where doing well on one metric meant sacrificing another metric? And how did you think about resolving that tension? That's a great, it's a great one. We did definitely have the concept of the North Star metric and it, it might have been different during different stages of the company. But let's say, for example, growth was a North Star metric. That was the most critical thing for the business. We wanted to reach as many people as possible. We oftentimes leaned on a paired metric and that can be great because you want to make sure you're not over-optimizing towards one metric at the expense of another. A great one to pair with growth, for example, is some sort of customer experience type metric. So a growth metric plus an NPS can be great or anything mm -hmm. that's making sure that you aren't growing too fast, that you're no longer delivering a great experience to customers. And so the paired metric concept 
basically serves as a check and balance internally and also externally so that you're not sacrificing what you care about in pursuit of something else. Exactly. Going back to, to your description of what operations at a startup is, one of the things that strikes me is that operations sounds like a very generalist role. I think for folks who are early in your career or even maybe mid-career thinking about transitions, there's always a question of whether or not to be a generalist versus specialist. Maybe your answer on this will be biased, but I'm curious where you fall in that spectrum between generalist and specialist. You're right. And my, my answer is certainly biased. I do identify as a generalist and there, there is a spectrum out there, but I do think over time, if you're becoming a specialist, you're doing one craft and you're getting really good. And if you aren't doing that, you're probably in the generalist camp, but that's not to say that a generalist won't for some period of time do a specialized role. For example, I led our customer experience team for a year and a half at Open Door and that, that's a real, that's a specialty. And I tried to learn it as quickly as I could so that I could come in and be sufficient at doing. But I do think generalists are a certain breed. They tend to thrive in environments where there are a lot of nebulous problems to solve that maybe don't require an overly specific skill set and often are at the intersection of multiple disciplines, whether it's analytics plus qualitative customer research, plus knowing some financial modeling or whatever it might be. And the generalist role though is probably not for everyone. It's, I think it's less certain in terms of career path, in terms of what does it look like in the first five years of your year versus 10 versus 15, I think you'll probably find some more winding roads than if you were to say, be something more of a specialist where you just become better and better at whatever craft it is that you do. And so navigating a career as a generalist can be a little bit trickier. But I would, I, my advice to, to people who do think they want to be generalists and thrive in that is to not shy away from taking on a specialist role and then using their strengths by whether it be being a cross-functional leader or by just taking advantage of the fact that they do have a few skill sets to pull from and finding opportunities to have impact. Even if you get a little bit creative about what exactly the role is, or if you do end up changing roles a few times at a company, I think that's fine. And a company needs both. They need both specialists and generalists. And so it's a matter of finding the place that fits and that you can have some impact. And I think, especially in a startup, when things are changing so quickly day to day for a generalist, it's almost like being in utopia because there's so many things could possibly be doing. On that note, how do you suggest uh, people go about having those conversations with your team or with your manager when they want to take on more or take on a different role inside of a company? I think I definitely am a believer in the ask for what you want school of thought. If there is something that someone wants to be working on within a company, I, I always would encourage someone to speak to their manager about what it is they want to work on. Why do they want to work on that? But the best thing you can do as a generalist or frankly anyone is be committed and be, be having impact basically always in what you're doing. You can't come in being someone who's not been pulling their weight or not doing a good job at, at what, they, what their day job is and ask for us to go do something else. But I've found that people who are performing well and enthusiastic about the work that they do, typically when they ask to work on something different or new, it's usually met with open arms and the other thing is come ready with ideas about how you want to do whatever that thing is and a plan for it. If you do need to transition away from other work that you're doing, how do you help find a home for it? Mm. How do you help find maybe 
hire a replacement or find another person or, or figure out how to take on both things. But I, I generally find that people should always ask for what they want and they might be surprised in uh, what they hear back. Going back to your definition of, of operations at a startup, and I feel like what do you think of all the functions in a company, product, engineering, marketing, tons of, have been writing about it, but not so much in operations. One of the things you mentioned was that a big component of it is on people management and team. What does that look like in practice? The big thing at the very beginning when you're building out a team is, of course, hiring people. Mm-hmm. And I definitely learned this from Keith Boy, but to hire the people that are basically not yet fully valued in the marketplace are probably quite early in their careers. They maybe don't have the specific skill set. But what I look for is general aptitude. And even more important than that is the right attitude. So positive outlook, hungry, ambitious, willing to work hard. And again, this probably goes back in my belief in generalists, right? The scrappy generalists mm-hmm. who will come in and figure it out and make it happen. But that that's where it all starts. So when I think of teams, it's all about hiring from the beginning. And of course, you also want to be a company that attracts talent, right? So you want to be working on something interesting and it's working, you're growing, you're raising money, whatever it is that people hear about it and are excited to come join the team. And then people management, I tend to think that when you have sufficient, just like interesting things going on and everyone's working at the limits of their abilities, which is an exciting place to be, a lot of that stuff works itself out in terms of creating opportunities for career development, for trying things. So that, that can be a really fun and exciting place to be early on in the startup. And, and people sometimes joke about whether in a positive way or negative, that there's not really much performance management in an early stage startup. <laughs> exactly. frankly, it's usually just because everyone's busy. There's a lot to do, but usually people are learning a bunch. And so it sorts itself out. I do think as you get later stage, putting in proper team structures, clear reporting structures, you know that you do get a review once a year or whatever that is. I do think that is important because people eventually want to get a bit calibrated and let me have a chance to reflect back on what I've done, what I've learned. And actually, Can I have a proper conversation about what I want to do next or an area of development I want to work on? So I do think that over time, you'll see that come into place. And that is the right next step. Certainly the notion of finding the diamonds in the rough or people who are sort of these arbitrage candidates is even more apt in today's labor market, where you hear a lot of stories from founders about how difficult it is to hire. So I think that's certainly a good framework to to keep in mind. The next kind of logical question is once you've got people in your organization and a company scaling, how do you upskill them to make sure that they're growing with the company? That's a great question. Upskilling, it's almost like there's not so much time for it, but you got to make time for it. And I often found that reaching out to people outside of the company who had whatever skill set that was for advice was some of the most important things that we could do. And whether it took the format of a formal advisor or just someone that you get on a one 45 minute phone call with and you prep with the list of questions and bring those in, that can be really important. And for me, what that meant early on when I was starting to build out a customer experience team was going and talking to a sales leader who actually eventually joined Opendoor, Erica Alieto, about mm-hmm. how does sales work and, and how did she manage teams and how did she think about hiring and what type of questions did she ask when she was interviewing? And And Eric made that intro for me really early on. And I think that helped me more quickly to develop that specialist skill set that I needed to be successful in that role. Same thing went for when we were building out our field operations team with Opendoor, where we wanted to get really good about the lightweight renovations we were doing for each home as we acquired them. We went out and talked to people who were 
big construction managers at big real estate companies and either had them come in to do a talk with the team or get on a phone call with one of our team leads and allow them to ask questions about, you know, how had this been done before? How, how did this person manage their teams? What were the pitfalls to look out for? And I think being able to bring in some of that expertise from outside the company can be really important. Hmm. Switching gears a little bit to a topic that I think anyone who's at a pre-product market fit stage cares a lot about is iterations. A lot has been written about how you iterate in the world of bits, right? So you've got A-B testing frameworks and all these various ways to test your software and a lot of philosophy around ship early and often. In the world of atoms, however, it's not so straightforward when you're selling homes. It's not very clear what it means to A-B test or in your case today, when you launch rockets or satellites, it's not very clear what it means to A-B test. Given your experience as one of the people who's been in the world of, of atoms, what are some frameworks that you find helpful to think about iteration and a timeline that makes sense for iteration when you're building a very operations heavy product? You're right to say that the timelines are much different and the, the data set might also be quite different. So you don't necessarily have clicks on a website to go analyze with an optimizely type of arrangement, A-B testing things, but iteration certainly happened. And one thing that comes to mind with our field operations team is the team that we use to go into homes, evaluate the scope of work required for one of these lightweight renovations we did. We had set up basically a checklist of a home. We need to check that all the doorknobs function, for example, and then we want to go inspect the carpeting. And one of the rules that we had set for ourselves was if there was a hole or damage, like a stain larger than a quarter, we would need mm -hmm. to redo the carpet. And what we would do as a team is basically every other week or maybe once a month or so, we would take a couple, two or three homes, and we would run through virtually together as a team with the uh, photographs from that home and whoever had gone through the home leading, leading the discussion. And we would talk through the scope of work that was coming together. And basically this reinforced the process for, for doing a scope. And mm -hmm. then it would allow us to analyze, does this make sense? Should we actually change the way we're doing things? Did that quarter sized hole in the carpet rule make sense? Were we actually ripping out too many carpets? <laughs> so we, we would take the time to go through individual properties like that. So in a much more kind of qualitative manual way than maybe a software product, but it did allow us to change our processes over time. And what I also liked is that we would bring the team together so that you'd have five or 10 people all in the room, everyone's brain engaged on this given home. And it would allow us to have discussion to say that, hey, people were bringing ideas from different homes they had seen. Another thing that actually came up with Opendoor was floor plans. That also came mm -hmm. up in one of these more qualitative discussions where we saw in the data that some of the homes that weren't selling well and there wasn't anything specific in the data we could pull out to say this was why. But when you get that field operations team together, these homes are not doing well. What do we think is going on? And they're saying, hey, I just, I walked through those homes and they have really weird layouts. I bet you that might be impacting the sale. That's the type of thing where we ended up iterating on how we did, I did our analyses of homes and their sale price based on something that was purely qualitative that never was even going to show up in the data because it wasn't. I think you have to go about it in a, a little bit of a more qualitative way. You don't always have the huge data sets, but I think every time you stop and you analyze 
how you're doing things and then make changes, it is similarly an iterative process. And the feedback loops may not be so straightforward as well. Um, sometimes the feedback loops may be on the order of months versus weeks that engineers are used to. So I really love this notion of taking a step back periodically, more often than not, to, to assess how things are going. What were some surprising cultural tenets at Opendoor that you think helped the company become successful? And how would you advise founders to think about company culture at the very early stage? It's unique to every company on how culture develops. And oftentimes it's some of the traits of the founders that, that tend to come through. One of the cultural tenets of Opendoor that I remember the most vividly and I think really impacted how we operated was our cultural value to build openness. And the example of this floor plan layout impacting sales is an interesting one, right? You had two very different teams. One was a data science pricing team that was analyzing the data of our homes and, and their time on the market and all of the potential data contributors or, or, or factors that might be contributing to this that were only in the numbers. And then you had this team of field operators who had construction backgrounds who were walking inside of these homes. And had it not been, I think, for that culture of building openness where people really were encouraged to speak up if they saw something, to develop these relationships across team, I'm not sure if we would have been able to as quickly identify that we had a floor layout issue. Hmm. It wasn't showing up in the data and it was impacting mm -hmm. pricing. And these two teams, despite their very different backgrounds and skill sets, needed to come together, work together. And jointly, only with both of them combined, could they figure out that there was an issue here and then figure out a way to solve it. And so I think that was an example of one of the cultural tenants definitely at work at Opendoor. And sometimes people think about culture as not having business outcomes. But in this case, specifically because you had a culture of openness, you're able to drive you know, better business decisions through collaboration. Julia, this has been such a great conversation and it's been a pleasure having you on the show. To wrap up, you spent a lot of time with founders today. You've got an amazing angel portfolio. What is some advice you would give to anybody who's thinking of starting a company today? My biggest piece of advice is to believe in yourself. And I have gotten to know founders from many walks of life very early on in their careers often who just made a go for it with a, an idea that they had. And a lot of getting something off the ground is really just believing in yourself and knowing that you have what it takes to get out there, to pursue an idea, to hopefully get other people excited about that vision you have too, for whatever it is you want to build, bringing them onto the team. And if you continue to cultivate that growth mindset, it's amazing how much you can compound your own learning, your own ability to execute against whatever that idea is that you have that you want to see in the world. Thank you so much for coming into the show, Julia. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. This was great. If you enjoyed this episode with Julia, subscribe for another exciting episode next week. If you have comments or thoughts, you can reach me at kojo at matrixpartners.com or on Twitter at Hey Kojo. That's H-E-Y Kojo. See you next week.